are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Recently, we asked for your questions about 17th century Particular Baptist church life. We received the following query. If a 17th century Particular Baptist walked into and worshiped in a 21st century confessional Reformed Baptist church, would he recognize it? Would he be at home there? Or in other words, what similarities and differences, polity, worship, practice, preaching, shepherding, etc., are there between 17th century Particular Baptist churches and 21st century confessional Reformed Baptist churches? Now, that's a large and very interesting question, so I'll try to answer it over the next several episodes. I'll begin first by addressing the central question of public worship, and I plan to do it under a number of topics such as time, place, attendees, and the service of worship itself. I hope for you to gain a real feel for particular Baptist church life hundreds of years ago. So first, what were the convictions and practices concerning the time of public worship? The most basic belief in this regard was that a holy day of worship was mandated by God in the fourth commandment. The churches believed that public worship must be held on the Sabbath day because it was the abiding law of God. This view was widely shared with many of their fellow citizens. They kept the Christian Sabbath, which they also called the Lord's Day or First Day, as a holy day. It was set apart for God's exclusive use in worship. Now, this meant several things to them. First, that the church must gather each Sunday for corporate worship. It didn't matter if the government had outlawed their worship or was making it physically or financially difficult. God required his people to assemble together as the church for his worship on the first day of the week. Meeting only with family or a few other Christians was not a substitute. This view is prominent even under persecution, as is evidenced by the records of Broadmead in Bristol, the particular Baptist church in Plymouth, and the practice of the London churches. Next, it meant that each member had to conscientiously attend. In reading church books, it's clear that weekly attendance was a requirement of membership. Broadmead in Bristol at least occasionally even took attendance and pursued members who had been missing for any length of time. Many cases of church discipline revolved around neglect of the mandatory worship of God on the Lord's Day. This didn't mean that they did not gather on other days. Some churches appear to have frequently assembled during the week for prayer, preaching, fellowship, and the business of the church. Many of the arrest records show that the pastor was preaching in someone's home at a, quote, illegal conventicle on days other than the first day. The churches sometimes called special days of fasting and prayer or thanksgiving based on God's providence toward them. But these were attended as convenience allowed 
a flexibility that was not permitted on Sunday. Another question related to time is this. How long were there worship services on the Lord's Day? There seems to be a variety of practices, but in almost all cases, they were lengthy. Some churches are recorded as meeting all day, meaning while there was light. Others met once for worship, then ate together, and then worshiped again. Others seem to have had two separate services. For those who shared a rented building, they could, of course, only meet once on the day. When did they meet on the Lord's Day? Generally, the answer is when it was light. Most typical seems to be meeting mid-morning and then again later in the afternoon. Benjamin Keach's Southwark congregation met in this pattern, but at times, in fact, for several years, he preached an early 7 a.m. lecture before public worship. If there were any artificial lights used, they would have been simple candles, as in the theaters of the day. But these took constant care, gave off little light, and often emitted a bad odor. So having windows with natural light and meeting in the daytime was the best option. Finally, as we reflect on time, realize that travel to and from church was often not short or easy. In the country or smaller towns, walking or riding miles to church would have taken considerable time. Meetings seem to have had appointed starting times, but doubtless many people would have come in late because of weather delays or transportation difficulties. Even in the cities, you couldn't choose a particular Baptist church by proximity. By 1689, it's estimated that London contained at least a half million people. Some say as many as 1.4 million. But there were only about a dozen particular Baptist churches in London and south of the Thames in Southwark. If you lived around the corner from the meeting place, the trip would have been easy, even in bad weather. But if you lived across the river and down a few miles from the meeting house, as Benjamin Keach did when he first moved to London, well, it must have taken considerable time, perhaps an hour, to get his family, which included young children, the several miles west and then across London Bridge to the house of worship. And, of course, all this presumed they were traveling without provocation from the authorities. Many times in the 1600s, longer routes or evasive ones were taken to the meeting houses. Some pastors are even known to have worn disguises in an attempt to get to worship unimpeded. All of that took time. But for them, the simple fact was that worship was ordered by God and worth it. That brings us to our second topic, the place of worship. As you would expect, churches tried to find a suitable building. Occasionally, they could be bought, but usually there was a rental-type agreement for them. This might change frequently depending on how strictly the local government enforced the laws against dissenters. This explains in part why tracking all the locations of a London church's meeting places can be challenging. Sometimes the buildings would be houses converted for the purpose of larger gatherings. Other times it was simply meeting in someone's home for those smaller churches. Broadmead contracted for a warehouse and turned it into a meeting place. It was on the 
second floor of a set of buildings, and that church still resides there today. In the cities, what we would call union halls or trade union buildings were popular. Playhouses were also rented. In the country, private homes or small purpose-built chapels were used. There's even one record of a wealthy man who lived in a castle which had once been the king's. This not only meant it was roomy, but that it was off-limits for police raids. Poorer or pursued folks might use barns, other outbuildings, or even meet outdoors. Under persecution, when their buildings were closed, damaged, or watched, the place of worship often became a field. In Bristol, for years under pursuit by the authorities, the Broadmead Church sometimes met outside of town, close to the county line. So if one jurisdiction caught up with them, they could simply move across the road or the stream to be in another district. These fields must have been sizable because the attendees sometimes were numbered in the high hundreds. In whatever building they met, though, the decor would have been plain. The architecture, when possible, and outfitting of the room was always simple to reflect the worship style. Unlike other church buildings, there were no visible symbols of God or any other religious imagery. Even the use of crosses was excluded. Both Hansard Knowles and Benjamin Keach are on record against visual symbols of any kind in a church building, and they were especially fervent in denouncing the use of the cross, since in their view, it always turned into an idol. The furniture and outfitting of a meeting place usually consisted in benches, chairs, or pews, and a pulpit and communion table. When Andrew Gifford's meeting house was raided and ruined by a mob, all the listed contents were a pulpit, seats, and the glass windows. The pulpit was the center of importance because that's where God's word was read and preached. Then as many seats as possible were arranged near it, and sometimes there were balconies along the sides and back. For the second floor meeting place of Broadmead, many times the women sat in the staircases. No space was set aside for musical instruments, because of course none were used, and there were almost no baptistries inside the buildings in this century. The pulpits were wood, but at least one London church had what a visitor described as a formal pulpit with a brown velvet fringed cushion. Well, in our next episode, we'll look at who made up the worshipers and what the order of service was like. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace. Thank you.